Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. You know me, you know each one in this room, you know what we need. You know the frailness of what we are. So Father, right now, we're asking for the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the only effectual teacher of truth. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and claim the merits of his holy and most precious blood. Amen. So I was trying to figure out what to talk about, and you know, they gave me a whole list of you know, concepts and whatnot, and I couldn't get away from this one idea. When I was a younger lad, and I wanted to understand God. I wanted to understand the plan of salvation. I wanted to understand why we were who we were, Seventh-day Adventists. And I had a struggle because I didn't understand the great significance of us going to church on Saturday and somebody else going to church on Sunday. We all love Jesus. So I, I didn't understand the, the, the realities of the issues that we as a people have to really deal with. So I prayed and asked God, to give me understanding because I wanted to know what was truth. But even greater than that, something began to happen in my heart. Not only did I want to understand what was truth, God began to call me into ministry. And one thing I don't want to do is teach error. I would rather just stay in my house and do whatever I do. I'd rather not preach. That's not one of my favorite things to do. So, Lord, if I'm going to teach the truth, please teach me what is truth. Because everybody has something to say. Somebody says righteousness by faith equals this. Somebody else says righteousness by faith equals this. There's this segment over here and this group over there. Father, I don't want to be deceived and I don't want to deceive anybody. Please show me what is truth. So as I've been struggling with the idea, the Lord showed me something. So today we're going to study what the Lord showed me. We're going to talk about broken, but loved. Broken, but loved. There's a quotation. I'm going to put it here for your purposes of studying. Great Controversy, page 423, paragraph 1 says, The subject of the sanctuary was the key. What was it, my friends? was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system. What did it open to view, my friends? A complete, a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing the, what's it say? present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. I read a quote like that and I'm like, okay, what is it about the sanctuary that creates this great system of truth? But then I, I read this. Evangelism, page 221, paragraph 2 says, the correct understanding of the ministration in the heavenly sanctuary is the foundation of our faith. The correct understanding of the ministration? Well, that's interesting. Uh, my mind begins to ponder, trying to understand a key, a foundation. And then this verse was presented to me. You can see it here on the screen. It says in Psalm 77 and verse 13, Thy way, O God, is where, my friends? In the sanctuary, who is so great a God as our God? In Psalm 68, 24, it says, They have seen thy goings, O God, in the goings of my God, my King, in the sanctuary. So God's way is in the sanctuary. God's goings is in the sanctuary. Now, my friends, you may have heard what I'm saying to you before, but I want you to put your thinking caps on. We're going to go deeper. Hopefully, in fact, uh, if you have glasses and you put the glasses on and your lenses were red, how would you see the room? Red. red. If you took the same glasses and then you changed the lenses, you put purple lenses on those glasses, what, how would you see the room? I'm telling you the truth, my friends. We're going to look at a story you know so well already. You've heard it many times before, but we're going to look at the story with the lens of the sanctuary. Is that okay? Yeah. 
We're going to look at a story you've seen many times. We're going to look at that story through the lens of the sanctuary, and hopefully you see it in 3D, 4D, HD. I don't know whatever D you want to look at it in. <laughs> but I want you to see it the way God sees it. You will start to see that if you put these glasses on, this system begins to come very clear. So notice this. You may have seen this before, but again, just a little video so you can, if you've never seen it, I'm introducing it to you now, and hopefully you dream about it. If you were a Bedouin and you were traveling along the way, you would notice an organized community in the middle of a desert, circum or, or, or surrounding a tent, and in that tent, everything circled around, you'll see this white linen that's there, you'll walk inside, and you walk inside, you'll see the altar of sacrifice. That's where they sacrifice the lamb for, for the sins of the people. And then once you get past their altar of sacrifice, you walk a little further, and then you see the bronze laver. The bronze laver, again, simplistic in nature, very simple concept, so simple a child can look and see and understand. And then you walk inside the holy place, and once you walk inside the holy place, you see the table of shoe bread there, two stacks, one for the father and one for the son. You see the golden candlesticks, the seven golden candlesticks there. So much deepness in that study, but we're not studying that at the moment. And then we have the altar of incense where the prayers of the saints were mingled with the merits of Christ. You walk inside there, you see the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, and God's Shekinah glory standing there in the midst. And all of this was surrounding the law of God that has that pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded. Now, I showed you that because I want you to put the lens on. You have your glasses on? All right. Psalm 73. Look at Psalm 73. And we're just going to walk it this morning. I want you to be thinkers. Psalm 73. And we're going to begin reading at verse 1. Psalm 73 and verse 1. The Bible says, truly God is good to Andre. Your Bible says that, right? Yours should say your name. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Now, why? Why would my feet be almost gone? Why would I almost slip? Why would I almost leave God? Notice what it says. For I was envious of the foolish. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not troubled as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasses them about as a chain. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt. And speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore, this people returneth hither. The waters are full, are a full cup wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? It is, is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in what, my friends? Listen, now, it's easy. It's easy. Now, keep in mind, the psalmist is writing. He says, I almost left the church. I almost fell away from God because I was watching the wicked. You ever seen the, the TV show um, MTV Cribs? You ever want, you look at the rappers and the gangsters and they flossing and chilling? And you're like, man, and I'm trying to be a Christian, be like strong with the Lord, and they just making money. They got, like, they got no problems. They got this beautiful girl over here. They got this fan guy right here. Everybody loved. Beyonce, I want to dress like, you know, like your mind starts getting captivated just a little bit. Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you just want to be rich. You know, the, the guy who has Amazon just became the richest man in the world. Maybe you just want to make money. Maybe that's your focus. Maybe you just want to, uh, uh, to be famous. Maybe that's, your, maybe that's your thing. Your feet almost well nigh slipped. Why? Because you were envious of the wicked. But watch. Notice what the Bible says, continuing on. The question he asked himself in verse 13 says, Verily, he actually makes a statement, Verily, I have cleansed my heart, how? Very well. 
in vain, and wash my hands in innocency, for all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I shall offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too, what's the word? Painful. Painful for me. Now, my favorite word, one of my favorite top five words in all the Bible, until. He felt this way for 16 verses, looking at the wicked, observing how wealthy they were, observing how popular they were, observing how prosperous they seemed, until, until what, my friends? Until I went into the what? Sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. So there's something about this sanctuary that opens up a pausation, if you will, to stop us from longing after the world. So then my question is, what is it that he sees in the sanctuary that causes one to say, I don't want to be like the world. I don't want what the world has to offer. What is it that he sees in the sanctuary? Well, let's go a little bit faster because I have a lot to cover and a little bit of time. Notice this. My, you know, it's funny. So my sister's giving a health talk. I'm praying to God like, okay, should I preach this sermon or should I preach? Because I have so much stuff in my head and I only have so much time with you. And I feel like I'm robbing you if I don't give you a lot of information. But if I give you a lot of information, you won't remember anything anyway. It's just this conflict. So my sister stands up and she reads John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. The exact text that we're about to study. I just thought it was fascinating. But praise God. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context. Jesus in John, go to John very quickly. Go to John, because we're actually going to study John 7 and John 8 in the context with the lens of the sanctuary. So Jesus is at the feast. There's a gathering. Now, whenever there's this feast, there's a gathering of all the adult men in Israel all to gather at these feasts. The Bible says that this is the last day of the feast. Now, the last day of the feast, they had this ceremony where they would actually get a bowl of water. They would go to a river and gather the water out of the river and walk in a very, like, ceremonial fashion from, one, from the river all the way to the temple. And this was to reflect and remember how God had provided water from a rock. Okay, so they're taking this water out of the river and they're walking with it in a very solemn ceremony and it's quiet. They're walking and it's quiet. And Jesus in the midst of the quietness says, if any man thirst, he disturbs the orthodoxy of the situation. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He has everyone's attention at this point, right? It's, it's supposed to be quiet. This man's busting out in the middle of the church, claiming, saying, and I'll read it in red, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of what? Living water, true story. This is a true story. This really happened. I was knocking on doors down there in Scottsboro, Alabama. A friend of mine, um, Elder Looney, and I were walking door to door. We knocked on this one door. Every week we would go to this door, and every week we would only see a hand. So he would knock the door. The hand would come out. He'll give us the lesson. Never saw his body, just his hand. We would give the lesson. He would give the other lesson back, and then we would close the door. This happened for three weeks in a row. Fourth week, I'm like, Lord, okay, this is getting kind of weird. We need to actually meet this guy. <laughs> so we pray, Father, give us access to this brother. So we go knock the door the fourth week. The man opens the door wide open. Come in. So we come in, we sit down. We begin to have Bible study. And as I'm going through, you know, when you're a young Bible teacher, you stick with the lesson. You know, the, le the question, and then there's an answer. <laughs> question, there's an answer. So I'm going through, giving question and answer. There's nothing wrong with that, and I'm doing that. And the man stops me in the middle. He says, I want what you have. It's just weird and random. I want what you have. 
And immediately the Spirit of God spoke to my mind. I said to him, sir, I can't give you what I have, but I can tell you where to get it. Brothers and sisters, the people in this world are thirsty. The other day, I have quite a few uh, Roman Catholic friends. Quite a few now. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. <laughs> it's, it's happened. And this one particular friend of mine is very wealthy. I mean, he has quite a bit of money. And we're talking. We're just talking. And I didn't tell him that I was a preacher or a teacher or anything. And then he says, Andrew, you preach, don't you? I say, yeah. He says, I want to listen to one of your sermons. I'm like, brother, I don't think you're ready for one of my sermons. I mean, I love you, man, but I don't think you, you're ready for one of my sermons. He said, no. He said, no. He says, we're all searching for truth. He says, you, you, I like what you say. I like how you carry yourself. Thirsty. Thirsty, I said. So I'm looking at the text and I'm seeing Jesus. If any man's thirst, I will give him a drink and he will have issues of water coming out of him, life coming out of her. Now this angers the leadership. Now we're going to progress through this. Remember now we're walking through the sanctuary carefully. I'm going to show you how. But he, this angers the leadership and I want you to see the discussion that begins to happen. The people start saying, is Jesus from this place? Is he a prophet? Is he the Christ? And so forth and so on. Verse 45. It says, then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto him, why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, never man spake like this. Sister White says, never man spake like this because never man lived like this. Never man spake like this. So they wouldn't even touch him. The power that was coming through jail, they were like, look, we're not going to touch him. There's something special about this man. Listen, I'm reading about this man, but I'm saying that all of God's believers should be walking in this type of power and this type of spirit. This does not need to be a theoretical game for you. This does not need to be another conference where you just say, I had a good time. Go back and live your life the same way you were living it. No, you can leave this place on fire for God, knowing that you are affecting people just by walking into the room. But wait, there's more. It says in verse 47, then answered them the Pharisees, are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus said unto them, He that came to Jesus that night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know not what he doeth? The, the answer descended unto him, Are there also of Galilee? Searched and looked, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. So that's the end of that section of the story. Next day, next morning, verse 1. Jesus went into the Mount of the Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. And how many people, my friends? So the people that were there yesterday that heard him say, if you're thirsty, come unto me. They came for morning manna. They are gathered there because they are knowing that he has something to offer and they don't know where else to get it but from him. So they're there early. Now watch. And all the people came unto him and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What sayest thou? All right, so let's go a little bit further. Woman's caught in adultery. She's brought in, thrown before Jesus in the midst. So let's, let's name all the characters in the room. You have the congregation, yes? You have, a con you have a whole bunch of people that's there. You have Jesus that's there. You have the scribes and Pharisees that's there. And you have the woman that's caught in adultery that's there. Everybody got the, the characters. But now we need to answer a couple of questions. Who is Jesus? Talk to me. Who is Jesus? He's God. John chapter 1. Go with me very quickly. John chapter 1. Who is this 
John chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, you know it by heart. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was? The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was? Life. life. And the life was the? Light of men. Verse 14. It says, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of, what does it say? All right. So I'm going to pause. I want you to pay attention. And even when I say what I'm about to say, I, in a figurative way, I'm taking my shoes off my feet. When the Bible says that the word became flesh, that means he put this on. The Word became flesh. God put flesh on. Y'all not hearing what I'm saying. The depth behind that concept should just rock our mental brain cells. The Word became flesh. Let me use a different way of saying the same concept. You see here, this is the Ten Commandments. These commandments in the, in, the, in, 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 in the book of, I believe, Exodus or Deuteronomy calls it the ten words. This is the word of God. This is the expression of the perfection of what God is. In fact, let's do a little biblical comparison. God's character is holy. God's law is holy. God's character is truth. God's law is truth. God's character is righteous. God's law is righteous. God is perfect. God's law is perfect. God's law or God's character is spiritual. God's law is spiritual. God's character is eternal. God's law is eternal. The Bible teaches that God is unchangeable. God's character is unchangeable. And the Bible teaches that God's law is unchangeable. God is love. And God's law is love. Ah, so wait. Pause for a second. Let this marinate. Let's make the connection. If God's law is a reflection of his own person, then when we see Jesus walking on earth in human form, he's walking in perfect righteousness. Y'all not hear what I'm saying? Hold your finger here in John. Go with me to the book of Psalms 119, and I want you to read 172. Psalms 119, 172, and watch what the Bible says. The Bible says, my tongue shall speak of thy, what's the word? Word. word. For all thy commandments are what? This is what you call a Hebrew parallelism. You see there where it says, my tongue shall speak of thy word. All thy commandments are righteousness. Word and commandments go together. God's law is righteousness. So here you have Jesus, a perfect man, walking amongst an imperfect people. Tell me, how did the imperfect people respond to the perfect man? Let me ask a different question because we put it on them. How, does, how do we respond to the perfect man? It is easy to put the onus on them for killing Jesus. I'm going to read something to you, John chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 16, because we all know that. Verse 17, 70% of us know that. Verse 18, some of us don't know that. So let's go. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave what? His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not what? perish but have everlasting life for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be what watch this he that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God and this is the condemnation what is the condemnation what is the condemnation? And this is the condemnation that light 
is come into the world and men love what? They love darkness. I'm asking a personal question right now. You don't have to look at me. You can look away. I don't know. I'm going to ask you a personal question. Do you love darkness? Now let's qualify what love is. He said, Jesus says, if you love me, you do what? So if you don't love, if you don't keep his commandments, then it says that you don't what? And if you're not keeping his commandments and you're doing something else, that means you love darkness. So I ask again, I want you to examine your heart as I ask you the question, because I know the spirit is already doing it. Do you love darkness? Is there any darkness in your experience that you're holding on to that God is saying, let me be the light in your darkness? Remember, we're examining the characters. Jesus is God. And the woman that has now been thrown at his feet is thrown at the feet of who? Of God. Perfection, my friends, is standing there. Flawlessness is standing there. The woman has been thrown at perfection's feet. Stay with me. The next question I have is, scribes and Pharisees? Who are these scoundrels? <laughs> Matthew chapter 23, watch carefully. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to read Jesus's interaction near the end of his ministry with these persons. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, the Bible says, Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in the seat of who, my friends? Moses. They sit in Moses' seat. Well, that's interesting. So that means they are in a position of great what? They're in authority and power, and they're supposed to be representatives of who? Of God. They're supposed to be representatives of God. Don't forget the characters. Jesus is the perfect one. Moses is the one that disseminated or gave the law to the people. Yes or no? All right. Watch. So notice how Jesus names these guys going forward. He's talking directly to the scribes and Pharisees. I want you to look at verse number 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Verse 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and what? Hypocrites. Verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Look at verse 16. Woe unto you, ye blind guides. Look at verse 17. Ye fools and blind. Look at verse 19. Ye fools and blind. Seems like Jesus got a problem with these guys. Stay with me for a moment. Let me ask you just, why would Jesus have a problem with these guys? What's, the, what, what's Jesus' issue? How many times does he call people names in the Bible? He don't do it that many times. So the issue is, let me say it, the issue is that these are supposed to be the representatives of God, and they are misrepresenting God, but they are still claiming that they are representatives of God. So when Jesus says, you travel land and sea to bring them into the church body, but you make them twofold more a child of the devil, why? Because you have a form. You have a position. You have a name. But you don't have power. See, what they were, listen, listen to me carefully, what these men were trying to do was take the law from the outside in. They were trying to take righteousness from the outside in. Jesus was righteous from the inside out. So they made a bunch of rules, all right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to translate the rules into regular conservative Adventism for our day. Is that okay? Can I do that? You, won't, you, you, know, I, I, you know, I have a wife, she still loves me, and whether you love me or not, thereafter, it does not matter. <coughs> One of the things we say, which is really good, we need to eat healthy. Yeah? Two, three meals a day, at the best. At least have your weight, um, have uh, uh, your, your water that you drink, 
needs to be, you know, you need to drink enough water so that you don't stay hydrated, which was good. Wait, there's more. <coughs> Vegetarian diet, stay away from the flesh food, you know, in the body. It takes three to four days for, three days for meat to digest, four days for, for cheese to digest. It's true. Stay free, don't do that. Worldly music, don't listen to that. Make sure you listen to only Kurt Franklin. Even that, maybe not do that. <laughs> huh? We have, we have the outside rules, which to a large degree are right rules. But to conform to outside rules without having an internal change is the definition of insanity. The Bible says a double-minded man is So you have Jesus, perfection. You have the woman, I mean, I'm sorry, you have the scribes and Pharisees, representative of Moses' law. And you have this congregation that's all there to see Jesus. And then you have this woman. The woman, without question, is a sinner. Yes or no? She has been caught red-handed, if you will. She's got, they Facebook-lived her. <laughs> they got her red-handed. There's no denying the reality of what's transpired. She's caught. Now, oftentimes when I hear this story told, the object of the story is the woman. But I want to tell you something. The object of the story is not the woman. I want to show you this. <clears throat> so here, and, and I think I've said some of these things already, but so Jesus is the glory of God, full of grace and truth. God's name is his glory, his truth. Name equals all those things. God's character is revealed. Condition is exposed. A decision is made. Now, I, I, I'm going to leave that on the screen so you can ponder possibly some of those things, but I want to go back to John for a moment. Go back to John. Look at chapter 8, and I want to show you this. Now, the men made a huge mistake. First of all, when they entrapped the woman, because the men also should have been caught and brought in. Yes, everybody agrees. Yes. The woman is thrown at the feet of Jesus. That was actually a miscalculation on their part. They should have never brought her if they were going to try to condemn her. But what happened was, notice what it says in verse number six. This they said, tempting him that they might have, ex uh, have to accuse him. Now, when it says that, please understand that no Jew had the right to condemn anyone to death. That was reserved for the Romans. So if Jesus had said, yes, she deserves to die because she committed adultery, then they would have been like, uh-huh, we got him. Yo, Romans, lock him up. But if Jesus had said, no, she doesn't deserve to die, let her go, then it would be like, see, he does not respect Moses. You see, the person in, 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 in trouble here is actually Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. You, you think when you sin, it's about you? The devil entraps you. He sets you up. Makes you fall down and gets you all, all messed up and you're like, oh, I don't want to go to God, oh, this and that. And God, Jesus is right there. The devil throws you at his feet, say, look, this is what you die for? Can you not see the hypocrisy in this crew? It's not ever about us, brothers and sisters. The devil is using us as pawns. Now, when you, when you begin to ponder the reality of what's about to transpire here, it's so powerful. So Jesus, because he's so awesome and so smooth and he's so far, he's like thinking so far ahead of everybody else. Notice what he does. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Can you see it? They're talking, Jesus is like, let me get down here. And he just writes. Looks up for a couple seconds and he just writes. He just writes. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Man, at this point, the woman's probably scared to death. 
Because in her mind, she probably thinks that that present truth preacher is flawless. Can I? I'm going to pause here for a second. I don't care how strong or how powerful any preacher is, you better pray for him. You better pray for her. Do not put preachers on pedestals. We have more issues than anybody. Can I, is that right, Doc? You put preachers on pedestals, you're doing them wrong. You need to pray for them. Oh, he preaches present truth. He must be flawless. No, he ain't, he, he ain't flawless. His wife will tell you the truth. <laughs> pray for those preachers that you think are present truth. He who is without sin cast the first stone. I tell you the truth, my friends, those who are quick to pick up the stone. In fact, a woman, a woman in Bible prophecy normally represents what, my friends? So the ministry, listen, the ministry that is quick to pick up a stone, the stone of the church, is no ministry of God. It's not. And we want to be, oh, that's present truth, because we, we want to bring the street into the church. It's not present truth. So Jesus says, he was without sin. Go ahead, let him cast the first stone. And again, he stooped down. <laughs> He's so cool. Again, he stoops down and he wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their conscience. You know what happened? Jesus is writing on the ground. They come in and looking at what he's writing. Name a said Pharisee, sin. Boom. Next guy, name, sin. Boom. Next guy, name. When they come and look, they're convicted. They drop the stone. They walk away. Big mistake. Now, they did the right thing by dropping the stone. Listen, that was the right thing. But they shouldn't have walked away. They did the right thing by dropping the stone, but they should have not walked away. My friends, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to let you think about it for a second. I really want you to examine your heart as we're going through this study. I want to know, do you have any stones in your hand? I remember I was at a particular place doing a, a seminar. We were doing a seminar. I can't remember. What, it, was a, it was an evangelism training seminar, but somehow it got into dealing with um, people that had been molested when they were children. But it was theoretical. In other words, when I asked the question, I was asking it theoretically. I wasn't asking it because I had experience or anything, but I was asking it theoretically, how, how would you handle it? And so a sister in the room responded, but when she responded, I could tell, I could tell in her voice that it wasn't a theory. She was like, how do you deal with this? That sister still had a stone in her hand, you understand? I didn't know what to say. I mean, my, my theorizing in regards to what the gospel, I mean, like, I, don't know what to, I don't know what to do with that. But God is in charge, amen? So as she asked the question, there was another young man that was sitting in the back on the left-hand side. He rose his hand. He said, I was molested when I was a child. And he began to express and say how he had given it to Jesus. And how Jesus had given him peace of mind and peace of heart. And then they offered to pray. I mean, it was all in, it was like a room like this. And they, we all came together. We praying and crying. And the Lord was blessing and relieving burdens. But some of us still have stones in our hands. We walk around ready to condemn our parents. To condemn our church. I say drop the stone. Let it, let it fall from your hand. The only thing is, don't leave. Stay right there, because Jesus is the only one that can deal with you. You drop the stone. So they drop their stones, and it says, and notice what it says. It says in verse 9, And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left. What's to say? Does that even make sense? Because remember, where was she? Where? What was Jesus doing when she was thrown at his feet? Teaching, Teaching who? Teaching. 
There's a whole bunch of people there. So when it says that he was left alone, alone as if the only person possible who can possibly give her any condemnation, there was only one lone person. The accusers left. The congregation watching. The only one that can condemn at this point, Jesus. I remember having a dream one time. <laughs> now, this is not like prophecy or anything, but I had this dream. And I was studying the three angels' messages, and you know the third angels' message, first, second angels' message. First angels' message says, and I, and, uh, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his what? Judgment has come, and worship him that made heaven and earth seas and water. So, I had a dream. I had a dream. In my dream, I was in church, kind of like this. And I was sitting in the pew, and Snoop Dogg was in the pulpit. Wasn't that a strange dream? So, Snoop was in the pulpit, and he pulls out a blunt, because he's always smoking. He pulls out a blunt and he begins to smoke in the pulpit. And he's about to preach. Of course, in my dream, I could not have this. So I stood up and I went to the pulpit. And I said, Snoop, you can't do that in here, man. And I remember, I'll never forget, I told, my wife will tell you. He says, don't judge me. That <laughs> was in my dream. I'm like... Oh, I, wake up, I wake up from the dream like, what was that? You know, because dreams come from a multiplicity of thoughts. And... But then it dawned on me. I know what it was. You see, the people of God have in their brain cells that no one can judge them. Everybody says, don't judge me. Everybody, everybody says, don't judge. What? You can't judge me. And guess what? We can't. But guess who can? Jesus can. Why? Because he is perfection. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You say don't judge me. You're right. I can't judge you. But there is one that does judge. And he's sitting in judgment right now today. The question is, are you going to allow him to do for you what you can't do for yourself? So here it is. There's only no, there's no one left. And the woman, and notice it says, and the woman standing in the midst. Remember, she was thrown into the midst before. Now the woman is standing. Jesus went down, the woman got up. Jesus went down, woman's up, standing. Now watch. I love Jesus. It says, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman. Now, how is that possible? How is it that he sees none but the woman? He's focused. He said unto her, woman, where are those thine accusers? Have no man condemned thee? Now, again, I, I want to posit to you that when Jesus asks you a question, he's not asking because he doesn't know. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? And he says, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Jesus is not asking because he don't know. The question is designed to cause a present reality in your brain. So where are you? Where are your accusers? Who, can, who has a right to condemn you? Listen, I don't have a right to condemn you. No one in this room has a right to condemn you. But there's one who stands as judge. Faithful judge he is. Perfect in all his ways. And the woman says, I love her answer. She said, no man, Lord. Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Huh. So the people who couldn't condemn in the first place, they're out. Now the only one that can't condemn says, you're good with me. But I want you to do something. I don't want you to sin anymore. Now, mind you, if this was an ordinary man speaking ordinary words, this would have nothing to do with anything. But Brother Brian said last night, when God speaks, 
creates. Y'all not hear what I'm saying? This woman was a prostitute caught in the midst of an adulterous behavior, uh, uh, an act condemned by God himself. God takes this woman, puts away all the accusers, then tells her to do something that's impossible. Go and sin no more. Now, in this moment in time, I need you to think for a second. What happened to the woman's sin? Where did it go? Wait. It was forgiven. Forgiven. Okay. So let's go to the sanctuary in our brains for a moment. I don't think I have the one on the screen yet. So in, let's go to the sanctuary in our brains. So in this moment in time, there was a transaction that took place. Okay. The woman sinned. The Bible says, Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is? Yeah. No, that's for all the sinners. Yeah. Anyway, it's one of these, 3.23, 6.23. You know, the, between those two. So the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. If the woman's wages were death, but she did not die, what happened to the sin? Say it louder. Somebody's going to pay for that. At that moment in time, there was a transfer. Because sin has to be punished, my friends. In that moment in time, the woman now receives a life that she does not deserve, a life that does not sin. Whose life is she receiving if she's not sinning? Whose life is it? So she's receiving somebody else's life. She's now walking in someone else's life. Because inside of you and me, there is no ability to live without sinning. Now, we, we trick ourselves because, you know, we have all these um, self-development books. And you know what I'm saying? You, you go in, you do, you do your certain mental exercises. You, you have your financial goals. You hit your goal. So you start believing that you, you're about something. You go down there, you work out, biceps are getting strong. You're like, yeah, I'm looking good. <laughs> you start believing in yourself. But this, let me show you something. I'm gonna pass these. I'm gonna pass this. Genesis, Genesis chapter 17 says, and Abraham was 90 years old and nine. The Lord appeared to Abraham, said unto him, I am the almighty God. Now, God does this for a reason. I'm, I'm going to a point here. He says, I am almighty God. Why does God introduce himself to Abraham as almighty God? Because the next thing he says is impossible. Walk before me and be thou what? He introduces himself, God introduces himself, just like he does in the seven churches. He introduces himself as the solution to the problem before he tells you what the problem is. I am almighty God. Now, walk before me and be thou perfect. I'm almighty God. Now, I want you to keep yourself sexually pure in this crazy, random sexually hyper community. Can you do it? I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're talking about a supernatural life. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Oh wait, there's more. Notice this. <clears throat> Christ's Optic Lessons, page 332, paragraph 4 says, The heavenly intelligences will work with the human agent who seeks with determined faith that perfection of character which will reach out to perfection in action. To everyone engaged in this work, Christ says, I am at your right hand to do what, my friends? Amen. Can I ask you a question? Let me ask you a question. Remember, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Is there a darkness in your life that you're holding on to that you're telling God, I'm not ready to give this up right now. I still got to do me. I'm not ready yet. Is there anything in your life like that? Jesus says, look, 
I'm here and I literally, this is, I, was, I, I so appreciated my sister this morning. She asked, do you believe in the gospel? I mean, I, I'm just going to be real with y'all. So about a year and a half now, the question has been in my brain, do I really believe? Because do you understand what the Bible is offering to us? The Bible's not just offering you forgiveness. The Bible, the Word of God is offering you victory. Amen. It's like, okay, you read a story. The story says, and Jesus walked on water. You're like, okay. What's the difference between Jesus walking on water and Superman flying? You know what I'm saying? Like, then you read, Peter steps out on water, and Peter walks on water. You're like, do I really believe that story? Is that real? As Peter keeps his eyes on Jesus, he walks on water. Is that a real story? Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, he sinks below water. Have Peter ever seen anybody walk on water besides Jesus? There's no other Bible story in the scriptures that shows anybody walking on water. So literally, Peter has his eyes are fixed on Jesus. Only when Jesus said, come, because he can only be sustained by the word. The word said, come. So he's walking based on that word. He's not walking on water. He has no natural ability to float. And that's the same thing in Christianity, brothers and sisters. We have no natural ability to be Christians our desires are for this world. Our passions are for this world. Everything within us cries against God. And the God of the universe says, come. But I, I can't walk. Come. Come. All you that labor and heavy laden, come. Come, you can walk. Come on. You're paralytic? Take your bed and walk. You can't see? I'm going to make some clay, put it on your eyes. Come. The question is, do you believe the gospel? Man, it's a struggle. I ain't going to lie. When you take your eyes off of Jesus, it's always a struggle. The secret is in the beholding. One of my favorite quotes says, as the student of the Bible beholds the Redeemer, there's awakened in the soul the mysterious power of faith, adoration, and love. Upon the vision of Christ, the gaze is fixed, and the beholder grows into the likeness of that which he adores. The secret is in the beholding. Last thing, and I'm going to let my special music sing. Look at this. And when I, now, you ain't got to get excited. But I got excited, and I don't need you to get excited. I just need you to think about it. What I'm about to put up here next should revolutionize your brain cells. Here we go. As the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it, the will, becomes what? Please, this is not in Greek, this is in English. What does omnipotent mean? Y'all are hearing this thing. So, the will of man, when he cooperates with God, man's will becomes omnipotent. Whatever is to be done at his command may be accomplished in whose strength? In God's strength. God is not asking you to be a Christian with your power. Jesus is not asking you to do all these righteous things in your own ability. He's saying, I have already procured it at the cross. I have sealed it with my blood. I have now given it to you by my spirit so you can live in this world, holy people. 
holy. All his biddings are enabling. Whatever he asks you to do, he says, I will provide the strength for you to do it. Whatever relationship needs to be broken up, he will give you the strength to do it. Andre, I need you to go start this. Lord, you see my pockets, man. I got no money. Don't worry that. Go do what I say. What is God calling you to do? Is he calling you to surrender your heart? Have you done that? Have you surrendered your heart to God? Have you submitted to his call on your life? Are you still halfway in the world, halfway in church, hoping that you can go to a GYC and slip into heaven? Where are you with God? I am of the conviction that there's someone in this room who has not fully left all things at the feet of Jesus. And at this point, Jesus is saying, I'm here. Let me take the shame and the guilt from you and let me give you my life. If you have heard the voice of Jesus speak to your heart this afternoon, and you want to give Jesus your heart, all of your heart for the first time, all of your heart for the first time, just raise your hand where you are. Is there anyone like that here today? Amen. All of your hearts for the first time. I see your hands. You can put them down. Father in heaven, you saw the hands that went up. No need for public demonstration. Just, Father, I, we ask as a church body, Lord, that you surround each one that raised their hands with with angels that excel in strength. We ask, Father, that you take those hearts, for we cannot give them, they are your property. Keep them, for we, not, we cannot keep them for thee. Father, please. My second appeal. You want to dedicate your life to Jesus, rededicate it, dedicate it, and you want to symbolize that by standing. I'm going to ask that you do that, to rededicate or dedicate your life to Jesus. Just stand. Father, we're standing. I know I was already standing, but I'm standing in response to that same appeal, Father. We need you. There's nowhere else to go. There's no other cleansing anywhere else. We let go of our rocks that are in our hands, Father. We're standing here alone with you. Father, please, more of your spirit, more of your presence, less theorizing, more experience, Lord. Put a passion in us for people, for souls. Put a love in us, Father, that the world will not know what to do with the love that exudes from your people. Father, please show us more of Jesus. 
We pray this knowing that you have heard our prayer and answered. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.